In the mid-1980s, I lived in Seattle. As a coffee junkie, I was in love with all the different coffee shops. There was Elliott Bay Bookstore's coffee shop located in their basement with its comfy chairs that became copied a zillion times over in both real life and on TV shows such as Frasier. There were Seattle's finest coffee and other roasters who made the nine solid months of rain tolerable, but there was one that stood out. Even though in 1987, they only had seven stores in Seattle in little tucked away locations. Starbucks was a true craft coffee company, roasting exotic beans from Africa, Asia, Central America, and the Middle East that no one else used. They were one of the first coffee companies in Seattle to sell whole beans along with coffee drinks. Oh, and the smell as she'd walk into their shops was amazing. By the time I left in 1991, they were up to nearly 120 shops. Exotic beans had given way to those that they could more easily buy in bulk, and the grunge-dressed employees were wearing something that resembled a uniform. Moving to San Francisco, for a brief time I worked at a small coffee roasting company in North Beach. I warned the owner about Starbucks, but he saw them as no threat. Not only had Starbucks signed a deal not to move into California until 1992, part of its very complicated history, but North Beach zoning laws didn't allow chains. Tony was a native of San Francisco, and he said people in SF were always going to buy from him instead of this upstart from out of state. And besides, their coffee wasn't any good. Had Tony ever tried Starbucks? No, but that didn't matter. Yeah, Tony told me he was going to expand to be as big as Starbucks. I just needed to stick around to see it. Starbucks came in like a tsunami into the Bay Area, only opening shops next to existing local coffee shops. They had zero interest in creating new coffee customers, only stealing existing ones. As per city regs, they stayed out of North Beach, but went everywhere else. With over half of San Francisco residents coming from elsewhere, there was no loyalty to local businesses, especially to ones that really weren't that good. And in an ever-changing world, Starbucks offered its customers something familiar. Starbucks' high consistency means its coffee tastes the same in London, New York City, Hong Kong, and all parts in between. Today, there are well over 28,000 Starbucks around the world, with 234,000 employees. My old boss Tony has two shops, but not the one anymore in North Beach. He couldn't afford the rent. Hi, this is Velo Mitrovich, and you're listening to the Brewer's Journal podcast from Reby Media. In this episode, we'll be talking about expanding your brewery, why you should and why you shouldn't. I'll tell you now, there are no easy answers. For medium to big brewers, you'll either have your own team or can afford to hire outside consultants to guide you along the way. As all of us know, however, from looking at developments from across the pond, this doesn't always guarantee you success. 
For you small brewers, hey, guess what? You just might be your own team and consultant rolled into one. Much of this podcast will thus be geared towards you. Stuart Howe of Harbor Brew out of Cornwall spoke at the Manchester Brewers lecture on the topic size matters. And I'm sure a lot of you small craft brewers will see yourself in Stuart's description. For some advice on how you do expand, we'll be listening to the brilliant Jen Merrick, founder of Earth Station Community Brewery and Brewery Consultant, who spoke at the recent Brewers Congress in London. As always, we'll be looking, too, at non-beer companies for insight. Just walking along your local high street, you'll see small independent businesses who are facing some of the same issues that you are as well. It seems like all of us have drilled into our heads that from the day we hang our sign outside our brewery, if our business isn't growing, it isn't thriving. And no wonder, if you're a small brewery, you work ridiculous hours, you say goodbye to relationships, you sweat blood trying to keep your beers consistent, and you're afraid to open bank statements. Should I go on? Okay. You soon realize that you can't count on each year being like the past. So. If last year you finally turned a profit, it doesn't mean if you do things exactly the same way, you'll turn a profit again. With weather, there's always a 50-50 chance that tomorrow's weather will be just like today's. And there's also just as great a chance it'll be different. Business is the same. You tell yourself at the end of the day that despite the hardships, it's all about the beer. It's all about your vision. But like a football team that's just been promoted to League Two, you know that it'll take nothing to get knocked back down again to the amateur hour. If you could only grow and give yourself a bit of cushion. And then there are the big boys of the craft beer industry who think the same. CEO Mike Hinckley of Green Flash. I mean, former CEO of my favorite. I mean, former favorite beer who brought the brewery up from 14,000 barrels to over 90,000 barrels a year. Then he and team decided to be a swell idea to expand all 50 USA states, Europe, Asia, and then take out a loan for $20 million to build an East Coast brewery that could produce 100,000 barrels a year. In their iconic brand, West Coast IPA, hey, let's reformulate that as well. Turning off core drinkers, who were already spoiled for choice with beer selection. Comerica Bank got bored waiting for the loan to be repaid and finally stepped in and seized pretty much the whole shebang, proving there isn't always safety in expanding. Adios, Mike and Green Flash. In one of Guinness's ads, it mentions how the company has had three generations or more of families working for the global stout maker. These people go into beer industry because that's what they've always done. Some families work steel, others work beer. In my family, we've always gone to the sea, either a sailor or a fisherman. With my youngest son now in the Navy, I can't even pretend to guess how many generations of my family have thrown a sea bag over their shoulders and walked aboard a vessel. It comes with the Mitrovich territory. But with the majority of you listening who have entered the beer industry, I'm going to guess that you're the first in your family who thought that this was a good idea. At this point, let me ask you why. 
Before you started thinking about yeast and business plans and logos, what sparked the fire? I'm willing to bet whatever is in editor Tim Sheehan's wallet that making a load of cash wasn't in your top five reasons, and I doubt if it even made the top ten. Stuart Howe of Harper Brew out in Cornwall said this about small-sized brewers and their mentality at the Manchester Brewers Lecture. See if you fit in. They're generally newly established because you're either starting, um, starting off or you haven't got very far and you wouldn't really want to be still brewing 20 barrels a year after 10 years of, of being established unless you're in the back of a pub. So it's, it's normally newly, newly established. It's normally got really keen and passionate people there in, in it because they love beer and they want to be part of the beer community and they want to make great beer. Generally funded by owners or investors. Uh, we're in a unique time now. When I got into the brewing industry, no one was investing in beer. Beer wasn't exciting. Beer wasn't growing. So um, modern breweries have generally got a lot more backing and a lot more, a lot more behind them than, than they used to have. So the investors become more significant at the moment. Generally very hungry for growth to the point where they might be um, discounting and they might be pushing things a little bit too far. Commonly, they're, they're trying to find their niche. They're trying to find their, the, the brand that's really going to drive the business forward. So, so the small brewer, in terms of strength, they're always going to be operated by really passionate people who really care about what they do they're they're in it for the love they're going to be working really long hours they're going to have loads of energy loads of drive um, really want to you know communicate their own souls almost through the through the beer they're making so that's that's a really significant strength and it's, it's something that, that the small brewers can use to their their advantage and should really should really use and also share through the marketing that, that they've got people there that are really committed and, and really want to be part of uh, the brewing community um, and they're, they're really motivated by the love of beer again if they're aiming for the craft market that's something they really want to share and the weaknesses really are everything else um, and it's not it's not knocking them um, you know they're small and therefore they they generally are inexperienced unless they're an experienced brewer that's gone to that's gone to um, that's gone down in size to do something so they haven't really got the knowledge of, of the product of the market of everything else the equipment they've got is probably not not very good um, another weakness and this is my view and this this relates to that that model of, of a great beer is that the innovation is often unhindered by tastes where they'll, they'll come up with new new brands which are exciting and different but aren't necessarily particularly pleasant to to drink more than one of and Basically, if they're constantly rotating their ranges, they're not brewing enough beer um, to, to keep it consistent and, and, and learn how to make that consistency because they're not, they're not sort of brewing the same beer frequently enough to do that. As Stuart says, you got involved in brewing because of a passion for it and beer. But now you're wondering what's next? What's the next direction to take your brewery? So let me ask you now four quick questions. Are you taking your eyes off the prize? What is it you set out to do originally? Is there a real demand for your beer or brewery service? Are you surrounded by strong competition? And can your beer go up against it? Are you dealing with pure market saturation or open skies of opportunities? Will you be able to find great people? Will they share your dream or be nine to fivers? Will you be able to trust them if you finally take a holiday? Will you be able to pay the salaries that great people can command? Are you overlooking other cheaper or easier opportunities? I've known both small breweries and restaurants who solved their need for space by instead of moving, they rented a space right next to theirs and tore down a wall. 
instead of expanding your own production, have you thought about brewing for others using your equipment? Is watching people drink your beer the favorite part of the experience? Instead of increasing bottle production, maybe opening a tap room is what will suit you best. Whatever you do, don't talk yourself into expanding simply because you think it's something you should be doing. Have some solid reasons to do it. Payfor is a London Manchester based business finance company for small and medium sized enterprises, providing companies with revolving credit to make payments to suppliers. It says on their blog that as a successful business owner with a great revenue stream, your instinct may be to expand your operations and grow your business, but it isn't always the wisest course of action to continually look to expand. Conversely, if you kept your business small, always looking for incremental organic growth, you may be missing the fact that scaling up would help out a huge customer segment crying out for your product or service. A quick list of reasons to expand your business are 1. Respond to market demand. People want your beer and you're having a hard time keeping up with demand. In fact, some days you're having to turn business away. 2. New markets, competition, and innovation. You're not providing pubs with a good enough reason to add your tap, which means taking away someone else's. Expanding into markets and other locations might be the answer. If, however, you think your existing market is where you should be, by increasing your production capacity, it should lower the cost of your beer and suddenly make you more attractive to pubs. As bands know, the money isn't in tickets, it's in the merchandise. Try to get people wearing your logo. It's like they're a walking free billboard. And have your shirts and hoodies and sizes that fit. Hey, we're beer drinkers, not kale eaters. Three, increase stability. As businesses grow, they tend to become more stable. A two-man brewery with limited streams of revenue is much less stable than a brewery with dozens of people on staff. Increase profits. Being a larger brewery means you can take advantage of economics of scale. Larger brewers can often get bulk discounts and better supplier credit terms, meaning costs are driven down and profits increase. People. Finding the right people to help you run your brewery is crucial and a challenge for many. Growing breweries tend to attract the best people. The opportunities and challenges that a successful growing brewery can provide for their staff makes them very attractive. Pay4 says that there are, however, many reasons for businesses to feel that perhaps growth isn't for them. Increased risk. With growth comes more financial obligations to both the brewery and your team. Stewart mentioned how most small breweries are self-financed, and I've seen some who use family and friends. If you go bust, who's going to be affected? Increase workload and staff. Growth can mean working longer hours, bigger responsibilities, more complicated structures, and more advanced supervision. Drop in quality. We've all seen this. As a brewery grows and receives larger and larger orders, product quality goes out the window. Thanks to social media, this will be instantly picked up on with the beer community and never forgotten. Increased cost. As you grow your brewery, increased revenues are almost always accompanied 
by increased expenses. Whether it's time or money, growing a business will cost you. Financial planning is crucial. Are you up for the challenge? Loss of direct control. Taking on more staff, growing your customer base, and extending your network of suppliers all tend to increase pressure on your way of doing things. This can make it more and more difficult to keep control of everything yourself. During November's Brewer Congress, brewery consultant Jen Merrick, founder of Earth Station Community Brewery, really explained well how to scale up your production, and never once did she scream at me for calling her Jean instead of Jen. I put her talk in here in its entirety because it's that good and sums up extremely well some of the points we've been talking about here. I think growth is cyclical and it comes in waves. You might have many waves running at the same time. I think it's good to plan for success and strategy is very important. I think it's also important to talk about your plans and and by telling others about your plans it keeps the heat on you to deliver that thing and keeps you committed to a course of action. I think it's a very positive thing to talk to the people around you and in your life about the thing that you intend to manifest. I think it's important to celebrate success, to take that moment to breathe and pat yourself on the back and to reward the people around you who've helped you achieve that thing. And then when you sort of come to the end of a growth cycle, I think it's good to think about what new opportunities are now open. So there might be, you know, a new kind of growth that you're poised for. Um, If you're open and flexible, there could be new opportunities there that kind of come next. I think if you think about the grandest, most challenging, kind of most glorious possible future for yourself and your brewery, what does that look like? What are its characteristics? You might be benchmarking yourself against another brewery that you know and might be able to research some of this stuff and say, how many square feet does that brewery have? Or what size of a team does that brewery have? You know, what annual turnover do they have? Thinking about some less tangible stuff, though, is good, like thinking about what kind of feeling do I want people to have in their hearts when they think about my beer? I think brand equity and your sort of ambitions for that or for, say, a social impact of a brand is very important to consider as well. So, you know, this, this planning for growth is about staying ahead of the curve, and I think you're aiming to achieve a seamless transition from small to large. So these are some of the elements. Um, in site constraints, ideally we would all build it once and build it perfectly the first time with just bolt-on capacity and you'd be able to do it in a modular fashion and, and you wouldn't have to have a shutdown and you'd be able to just move from small to large um, in a kind of seamless and pre-planned fashion. But in order to facilitate that or as close to that as is possible, I think um, it's good to have a good look at the outset of planning for a brewery for the things that you'll, you'll need to be able to bring to bear as you expand. So you've got footprint, the square footage, the ceiling height, you know, how much of that space is going to be dedicated to packaging or how much of it is going to be dedicated to fermentation. You've got to think a lot about utilities. Are they already on site? Will you need to bring them on site? There's massive delays typically if you're waiting for someone to bring new utilities on site. So if you've thought about that and plan for it in the future, you, you need space for expansion, um, but you don't ideally want to be paying for a big massive building at the front end. So it's a good idea to, to be able to, to take on more units. You might need to be able to have access for raw materials or special types of vehicles to deliver to you 
as you grow, so thinking about that at the front end. Obviously, how long is the lease on the site? A lot of breweries fall down, I think. Maybe signing a lease with a, with a rent increase that then makes it untenable in the sort of medium term. The kind of trend towards um, craft breweries being brought into derelict industrial areas to gentrify the place, and then the minute that you've done your job, you're out on your ear because the, the rent and rates have gone up so much, which is a difficult thing to surmount. Or you might be starting to feel pressure from neighbors as, as the site start, starts to become a more popular area. Thinking about in advance whether or not you can get a grain silo on site or whether or not you'll be able to add a big CO2 tank in the yard of the site is a thing that's worth thinking about in advance. So those are, I guess, some of the pitfalls, I think, when you think about site. The kit constraints are to do with what assets the business is investing in. You're doing the capital expenditure. Ideally, you'd be able to grow and expand using some of those assets that you've invested in. You know, there are a lot of considerations right the way through the process about what kit you're investing in and what you might be able to do with it. Work capacity is only one of the considerations. How many times can you turn that brew house and how many thousand liters of work can you generate? There's still a lot of questions about fermentation capacity and how, how much vessel residency time are you planning for? What if, log, what if your logger takes off and everything suddenly needs twice as much vessel, vessel residency time? It's worth planning for that. The glycol chilling component of that as well and longer conditioning times. Planning for packaging. It's really hard when things change as fast as they do and new packaging trends might take you by surprise. You might have invested in a bottling line but then a canning line turns out to be what you want this year and that's a, that's a tricky thing I think for people to to plan for and foresee. Warehousing and distribution are things that we invest in those relationships and those routes to market at the front end of starting a business and are those going to grow with us? Are those people who are going to be able to grow our business and do higher volumes with us? Are they the right relationships? Um, being wary of giving away, say, um, exclusivity to a distributor who wants to carry your products in a certain area, whether or not they can grow with you over time. Um, and there are potentially Regards kit some temporary solutions. Maybe you can rent that piece of equipment. Maybe you can lease it and get an agreement where you can give it back when it becomes too small and move on to something bigger and trade up when you need to. Team constraints, I think, are something that are really critical to a business and it's very much all hands on deck in the startup phase of a business and everybody might do everything, but how do you end up in five or ten years' time with the kind of structure that's the right shape and size for a, a bigger organization. So, you know, businesses are, are run by people, and so building a future for those people that are in our businesses, that people want to stick around and they can make a life out of it, I think that's very important consideration, and that kind of goes to your company culture. What kind of a place do you wish to be, and is it the sort of place that will attract talent and keep talented people around? I believe in cross-training. I think it's good when more than one person in an organization knows how to do something. You don't have the sort of key person risk of having only one person that knows how to do a thing. People can have sick days or take holidays then, but also your business is much more protected. And that goes to succession planning. I think it's really important to prepare for staff turnover. It's inevitable. It's a thing that happens. And being prepared for it and having a number two in charge of things who can take the reins when that does happen. I believe in professional development and I think investing in your people and growing them. They may leave you and take all that knowledge with you, but I think it's very, very important. So it might be seminars or training, education, sending people out to things like this. I mean, if any of you 
Many of you, I'm sure, are here sponsored by your employer, and I think that's a really great thing to do for people and invest in them. Um, I think it's good for people to see their career opportunities within the company and to be clear about the fact that there is room to climb the ladder within the company, people to have this sort of career path laid out in front of them and be able to think about what it is that they would like to achieve next. Do they want to go for that management role or would they rather stick with a different path? And I think laying out those options. And then the, the very most important thing I, I think about the team is to be realistic about labor budgets. You're not going to have an organization in 10 years' time that's made up of 50 or 100 people that are all on 20K. Um, if you want to have a healthy organization that has senior leadership, there have to be budgets for people to, to make the kind of money they need to make to make a career out of it and to run a, a big, sophisticated, professional organization. When you're considering your products and portfolio and can, can think about what kinds of beers you might be making in the future, I think whilst we can't predict the future, um, we can plan to make ourselves as flexible and responsive as possible so that we can pivot when we need to, when the market changes. And I think it's also a good idea to plan to show a little bit of leadership or a bit of innovation. If you think there's a thing that nobody else in the market is doing, you've got that open water ahead of you, um, go for it. So I'll just talk about these points on, on products and portfolio while you look at my pretty pictures. I think you've got to start with quality and consistency. You can't build a business just by winning new customers all the time. So you've got to be, they say in the marketing industry, you've got to be delighting your existing customers every day. And that means the products have to be spot on and they have to be getting exactly what they expect from you day in and day out. Think about the scalability of your products and your portfolio before you invest in them, before they catch on and before they become the thing that everybody wants, if you've given a little bit of thought about whether or not that's scalable. I think it's very, very important as well to, to ensure that those products are profitable. If you're not making money, it's no good gaining lots of market share. Making a whole lot of beer that doesn't bring in any cash is not healthy for a business, not a healthy way to grow. You know, that speaks to making sure that you're efficient and that there's a little bit of excitement, you know, that you can generate excitement around products and say, here's a, here's a new offering that brings new people to the table, that keeps people interested in what you're doing and sort of makes something interesting happen. Telling everybody, if you talk about your plans and tell people your vision, they can point out some of the pitfalls. I think it's really important to talk around the industry a bit about some of the things that you're thinking might be next for you. And, you know, if your, your friends in the industry can sort of help talk to you about some of the things that might be pitfalls there or that might be worth watching out for, that would really be useful. And it also um, makes you stick to your guns. So talking a bit about what it is that you want to achieve, I think will help you keep those commitments. Coming back to the end of the cycle then, so you've been through a big cycle of growth and everybody's pulled it off and maybe there were some hard times and some good times and you maybe do a bit of a post-mortem and say what well, we could have done better, but I think most importantly it's really important to show people that you were paying attention, you were measuring performance, you acknowledged the improvement and sort of celebrate that, those achievements together with your team. At the end of a, a big expansion, end of a big cycle of growth, um, and you've practiced some of these concepts and you're kind of striving to become better and not just bigger, um, hopefully you get through that expansion uh, with an appetite for the next challenge. And I think then you're, you come out on top, ready for whatever's next, and you're in a, in a position to sort of see the next niche, the next great thing, the next, the next um, 
great idea. So that's me. So at the end of the day, do you expand or not? It boils down to this. What are you looking for in growing your business? If you understand the brewing business, your part in it, market threats, and opportunities well enough, then you should know what direction to take. I started this beer podcast with coffee. I'll end it with coffee, sharing with you a story from Entrepreneur Europe. Dean Sycon had been selling his fair trade coffee to Whole Foods Market Outlet in New England for five years when he got the call. The natural foods giant wanted to expand distribution of Dean's Beans Organic Coffee from the 17 stores that already carried the product line to the entire U.S. Whole Foods roster. Sounds like a bean roaster's dream come true, right? But Dean hesitated when he realized the change would triple the size of his orange Massachusetts-based business overnight. I looked at what it would do to our company, says Dean. First, it would require us to add evening production shifts, which we're not interested in because family and quality of life are a big part of our company culture. It would also require a $500,000 investment in machinery to make roughly the same profits. I realized we'd have to work three times as hard to be in the same position financially in terms of profit. What's the point in that? Dean respectfully declined the Whole Foods offer. Instead, in the 10 years since, he's expanded organically at a slower, more comfortable pace that has allowed him to stick to his business principles. Growth is the outcome of business done well. It should not be the goal, he says. This has been your host, Velo Mitrovich, and you've been listening to Brewer's Journal Podcast. For more great podcasts, go to readymedia.com. To find out about the next Brewer's Journal lecture, and or to hear the complete lectures, visit www.brewersjournal.info. Hey, thanks for listening.